Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Okay, tonight, hello everybody. Uh, we're going to be in Leviticus 19 tonight. And uh, we had a couple technical difficulties, so I know people are going to be dropping in here as we go. Um, Katie's trying to get the chat out on the other stream. Uh, we're um, going to be moving forward, but before we do anything, uh, let's say a word of prayer and uh, we'll get started. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you uh, that we can open up a, your word and we can study what you have to say. Lord, prepare our hearts uh, to hear what you have to say. Uh, it's always... Uh, um, a shaping and a molding experience, Lord, when we hear your word. And Leviticus is challenging for anybody. So, Lord, I just pray that your will is with us and that you are with us as we go tonight. Help everything to be um, to work and the streaming to work and all the, the technology to keep uh, us connected as best it can. Lord, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Uh, so in Leviticus 19, where we're going to pick up... Um, as a, as a form of context, we are continuing with a book for the Levites. So the Leviticus uh, starts off and, and leads us through a series of um, sacrifices that the Levites are responsible for moving forward. Um, and they uh, are taught, here's what you're going to do for each of these. And then in chapters 9 and 10 of Leviticus, we see the priestly ministry get established and there's a consecration ceremony for them to, to start off and to get going with things. But at the end of this priestly ministry, Nadab and Abihu start to add their own elaboration to these sacrifices. And God strikes them dead immediately and then turns to their dad and says, "You're not. I don't want you to get upset because they're not doing it the way I asked you to do it. So as priests, you're not here to create a new religion. God's going to create that religion for the Israelites. Chapter 11, um, we started to see that God's explaining these things immediately after the death of Adab and, and, and Abihu, Nadab and Abihu. He starts to say, look, all humans are sinners. You're all born as sinners. And then in chapter 12, he says, when you eat, you have to eat in a way that's clean versus unclean. And then in chapter 15, he basically tells them all to take baths, right? Stay clean. And in chapter 13 and 14, there's this image of leprosy on humanity. And God tells them, this is what leprosy looks like. And he tells them, this is what you're going to do when you do see somebody who's healed from leprosy. So in context, God's telling these Levitical priesthoods how to get how to set things up for the sacrifices, how to do the consecration ceremonies, and also how to guide the people in holiness, which becomes the, the most important part of what the Levites are going to do, is they're going to be guiding people in this kind of walk of holiness. So right in the middle of the book, or middle respectively, um, you see in chapter 16, there's this Yom Kippur, this Day of Atonement that God's going to have. So right smack dab in the middle of here's all the ways that humans sin, 
that there's this atonement piece that's in the middle. And I think it's important to kind of read that because as we go through these chapters about how humans should and shouldn't be doing things, that can be challenging because if indeed we are sinners, at some point we're going to get something to something on that list that we kind of feel a little guilty about. Or worse, maybe there's something on the list that we as human beings want to defend or we want to kind of advocate for. Well, that's not actually that bad or it doesn't deserve that kind of thing. But right in the middle of Leviticus chapter 16, there's this day of atonement. That's the whole central point of everything that's going on since we did the sacrifices at the beginning of the book. And it's going to continue. Last week we did in chapter 18 an entire chapter on all the sexual practices that God is not okay with. And then in chapter 17 we got into um, uh, uh, all the different ways that blood gets used or not used. Actually, it's reversed. 17 was the blood chapter. 18 was the sex chapter. But again, right between, on either side of the Day of Atonement, we see chapters of these lists of sins that God's not okay with in human behavior. Um, but I think it's important that we see that at the heart of this is atonement. The whole point of this isn't to point fingers at each other or for God to point fingers at humanities. The reality of sin and its existence and the fact that we're born in a sinful state is part of the whole narrative. The middle of the narrative, the heart of the whole thing, is that God has set up a way for atonement for the Israelites, that they can find that path. So now in chapter 19, as we get going for tonight, we're going to see an elaboration on the Ten Commandments. And this is kind of interesting, because in some ways there's some repeat here from what we saw in Exodus, but here there's a focus on the heart of these commandments versus the rule. So it's one thing, for instance, as we get into this, it's one thing to honor your father and mother. It's another thing to have reverence for them, right? One is an act of obedience, but one is an act of the heart. And we're going to see here in Leviticus a passage that sounds a heck of a lot like Jesus. And when Jesus kind of says things like, look, it's, it's the heart that matters more than the rules, we're going to see that here in the Old Testament too. I think sometimes people beat up the Old Testament for being a book that's legalistic, um, but here we see that legalism has something to do with how you should think in your heart versus how you should just act it out of compliance. So we'll get going and we'll start off in, in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses. I just went back and counted, and just so we know, the Lord has now spoke to Moses 20 times in the book of Leviticus. So we, we've got multiple sections here where the Lord speaks to Moses. So the Lord speaks to Moses, and this is what he says. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So in the last chapter, we saw a list of things we're not supposed to be doing. Uh, and here he's going to lean back on some things that we should be doing and some things we shouldn't be doing. In both of the chapters, God's going to reveal his will to the people of Israel. This is how you're supposed to live. And I think this is the question that a lot of times we wrestle with in our lives. Okay, Lord, if I want to follow you, what do you want me to actually do? And in one way you say, well, it's a long list. In another way you think, well, these are doable things. Like as humans, we can do what he's asking us to. Uh, and if we do that, there's some promises that come with that. So the tendency, I think, that all of us have as we dig into chapter 19 is the tendency of all of humanity is to tell God what we think God should be saying. That we think this should be holy and that should be holy and we want to make up the rules. It's like when you play a game of Monopoly and you want to add the free parking rule. We have a tendency to want to add our own rules all the time. And 
I think to take a fresh look at these rules or this commandment is part of what we're doing in Leviticus 19 versus what the original speaking of the Ten Commandments back in Exodus. So let's take a fresh look at this now that we know that there are sacrifices, now that we know that there's an atonement system, now that we know that there's a way for us to be holy, then these rules suddenly are things that have to do with who we are, not how we act at some level. And, I, and I'll show you those shifts. To be holy means that we shift that desire to tell God what holy is, and we just do what he says. And the, the essential conflict of humanity is this challenge between our pride and God's will. And serving God sometimes is a hard thing to do. Because even in areas that we really kind of want to challenge or push back on, we ultimately want to do what God wants us to do because he's God and he's holy. So that's a tough thing to do. And that's part of my prayer this week is as we go into these kind of how to live our life things that we at least hear God out at the beginning. And, and at some point to follow that all powerful God, we're going to be challenged or else there isn't much to the, the Christian life. We would have lived that way anyways. But a Christian life is to submit ourselves to God and God's plan, and God is the one who gets to define what's holy and what's not, not us. So that gives us a heart that kind of has some conflict. On the flip side, you shall be holy, for I am the Lord your God, for I the Lord your God am holy. There's on the flip side of a heart that kind of has a struggle with some of these things, there's also a heart, at least in me, that desires God. I want to be more like God. So there's this thing that wrestles, and Paul talks about that, that there's this, this struggle that goes on inside of all believers, that we want to be more like God, yet we want to tell God what the rules are. And that, that conflict is there, and I think we're going to see that in this chapter. Being holy at the end of the day is not about a dutiful following of a list of regulations. Being holy is about something that happens after chapter 16 with atonement. Now that we have a heart that seeks God, that battle starts 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 up between the part of us that wants to resist God and the part of us that wants to be like God. And in, and we realize in chapter 17 and 18, we are not like God. We have a lot of desires that conflict with what God wants. And in chapter 19, we start to see that holiness is about who we are, not about the rules we follow. Here's the first one we'll take. And, and, and with that lens, I want to look at these. Verse 3, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I'm the Lord your God. Now, I read that to my kids every day, every meal, every lunch, each time they leave the house and every time they come home. We keep reading that to them all the time. Uh, we keep reading it to Shadow, too, but Shadow just ignores it or wants food. Um, this idea that you shall revere your mother and father. So this mirrors the Ten Commandments, and we're going to see that this whole chapter. But there's a difference between the way it's said in Exodus and the way it's spoken here. And that is, in Exodus, it says to honor your father and mother, and here it says to revere them. See the difference? Revere is yare, is the Hebrew word. It's very different than the word that we saw in Exodus, right? Honor is to do the right things. Reverence, yare, is an outpouring of the heart. It's your feelings towards your parents. So something that comes from within or a belief about your parents, not just dutiful honor. So to do that takes kind of that takes a different kind of heart. And I think that in Leviticus we're seeing that now that we have atonement, something should change in us. And a reverence for your parents or a belief about your parents um, 
is is almost despite the fact that they're human and they're sinners too, right? At some level, you honor that they're there for the generation before. This honoring of parents in the Jewish society is a foundation for a culture that will continue its traditions from one generation to the next. So there's those that do what they have to, and there's those that act a certain way because of who they've become after atonement. Verse 4, do not turn towards idols, nor make yourself molded gods, for I'm the Lord your God. It's interesting, the word idols here, (laughs) the, the root of that word actually means emptiness or nothings. So it could be read, don't turn to nothings in your life. So after you've been atoned for, don't turn to things that are empty, things that are nothing, things that are full of air, nor make for yourself molded gods. See, there's kind of two things here, because um, we'd think idols would be the molded, molded gods, but there's a list of two things. Don't turn towards emptiness, and don't make for yourself molded gods. Don't worship things that humans have made. And humans have made some cool things, right? But we shouldn't worship those things. And the rationale is, I am the Lord your God. God wants that attention and that worship out of your heart. So, verse 5, And if you offer a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it of your own free will. So it's one thing to offer the offering. It's another thing to have a heart that wants to do it, a free will. Free will there is ratzan in the Hebrew. It's an attitude of the heart, and we just keep seeing that in this chapter. It's more than just doing the sacrifice that I told you about in, in, in chapter 3. God's saying, in addition to doing all these things you're supposed to do, I want your heart. So it should come out of a, a free will heart or a heart that is opened to freedom, not a have to, not, it's a get to. So, in, you know, in the same way you could say things like we said to our kids as they got older, you know, if you don't want to go to church, don't go to church. Don't do things that your heart isn't 100% behind. But we go to church sometimes out of obligation or guilt, or we don't want people to say that we're heathens or something like that. We go because we have to. But that isn't the heart that God wants us to go to church with. He wants us to do it because we get to. So if you're going to fellowship, you should do it out of your own free will. This is sounds a little like Jesus when he says it's not just about doing these things. It's about having a heart. Verse 6 It shall be eaten the same day you offer it. He's talking about the peace offering. And on the next day, if any of it remains until the third day, it shall be burned in the fire. And if it's eaten at all on the third day, it's an abomination. It shall not be accepted. Abomination is the same word we saw in the last chapter in reference to acts that God has defined as sinful. If you do these acts, that's an abomination to God. So eating the peace offering on the third day is at that same level of abomination. Why? Because when we do our peace offering with God, it should be fresh. (laughs) It shouldn't be stale and it shouldn't be stank meat, right? So you have this opportunity to fellowship with God. It should be of your own free will and it should be fresh. It shouldn't be something that you're just doing out of obligation. It shall not be accepted at the the end of verse 7. It's not even worth our time. If we do it without the right heart, it's a waste of our time. It's not even accepted. Therefore, in verse 8, Everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he's profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord and that person shall be cut off from its people. Well, that's pretty serious. We serve God and we don't do it with the right heart. Not only does God not accept those things, but he does it horribly. I remember one time uh, we had a group of people going to uh, feed my starving children and I really didn't want to go, but I did because I was said I would and it's an obligation. 
but I was kind of there and I didn't enjoy it and I wasn't packing the stuff fast enough. And about halfway through the time, I had to just say a prayer and say, Lord, I don't really want to be doing this, but you got to change my heart. Give me a heart that wants to be here right now doing this. Because if I don't do that, it's not just that you won't accept that offering of time. It's that it's an abomination and it actually pushes me further away from God. And I can harden my heart to that and just make that my kind of practice normally. Or you can pray and ask for the Lord to give you a heart of free will towards those acts and those things. Verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. And again, that same rationale keeps, keeps coming through this chapter. I am the Lord your God. So corners, when you're using large farm machinery, that's kind of a thing we do naturally because when we turn the corner with that machinery, <laughs> we leave the corners. Um, but in, in, in this time, those corners would have probably been the smallest of the plants, the, the weakest of the plants, because when you're at the edge of a field, you don't get the shade of the other plants. So if you've ever looked at a farm field, those edges are kind of the usually the smaller versions. It's easy to see in a cornfield. Uh, and they're generally not as healthy. And when it says don't just go and pick those parts of your field, God's really saying don't covet, you know. So don't, if you're trying to get every little, squeeze every little bit out of your field, um, then you're being consumed by your work. And you're being, you're taking that to a level where you're um, not thinking of others and you're spending all of your time trying to get those last little bits out of it. I think everybody struggles with this. We all covet and we all kind of get consumed by the things we don't have. In fact, in the 1950s, advertisers figured this out, and they realized that they could use TV to put things in front of people that they wanted, and that got us to covet things. So all they had to do is show happy, pretty people using a product, and millions of people across America would go out and buy that product. And advertisers figured out they could put something in front of humans, and we just want it instantly. So all you have to do is show things to people, show that they're smiling, and they're going to want those things. But in here it says, you shall, it's a command, not wholly reap the corners of your field. Don't try to squeeze every little penny you can out of your work and everything you do, right? Leave some things there. The, ra the Part of the rationale here is, is that, that we want to leave things for those that are poor. So you want to respect and leave things for the poor people in verse 10, and that is because God is your Lord. So if you're not squeezing every little bit out of your finances, then it's easy to be generous because you can give the corners of your finance to the people around you that need those things. Interestingly enough, the entire book of Ruth is based on the premise that there, were, there was a program for poor people in Israel. And that was, if you didn't have your own fields, you could go out after the harvest and you could kind of harvest the corners of other people's fields. And this is where Boaz in Ruth 2.2 found Ruth, is that she was one of these poor people harvesting from the field. So one of the greatest love stories in the Bible is built on the premise that Boaz was doing what God told him to do because he had a heart to serve the Lord, and that's how he found his future wife. So, and, and you know, Ruth probably liked Boaz because he was generous, because she could see he was following God's law. So it's not a coincidence 
that the image of God's peace offering, which is the only offering where there's, a, there's that kind of shared feast that's going on, right after that image, now we have this image of, a, of harvest that comes next. So there's a shared feast that's going on, and then there's a harvest, and here's how we're going to treat the harvest of fruit and plenty. Verse 11, we shall not steal or deal falsely or lie to one another. Now, in Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, it's just thou shalt not steal. Uh, and here it kind of elaborates a little more that stealing and dealing falsely and lying are kind of the same thing. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your Lord, of your God. I am the Lord. Same rationale. So here we add to this idea of stealing is falseness, lying, misleading people, or being people that don't speak truth. So, And that's tough, because sometimes there's times and places where not speaking is the right thing to do, and there's other places where you have to kind of say what's true, even though you know you're going to make the listeners in the room not so happy with you. Thieving and lying are in the same stream of human behavior, and that's an interesting kind of thing. When you lie to people, you actually take truth out of their life. You're stealing something from their understanding of the world because you're giving them a mistruth. And when you steal physical objects, that's as bad as stealing spiritual objects like statements of truth, right? To deal falsely with people uh, was a common problem in the ancient world, and frankly, it's still a common problem, is you get people that create deals or sales arrangements with people where they're getting ripped off. Don't do that. So... It's something to be very careful about here. When it says, don't swear by my name falsely, uh, it, it, it occurred to me that there are some kind of wings of the Christian church where this is something to be really wary of, where you get groups of people where everything that happens and everything they see, they're giving God credit for that. Or even worse, they're saying, God told me this, or God said this to me, and God did that, where they're giving God's name part of the authority of what they're about to say. Now, if God actually told them to do something, like God spoke to Moses through a burning bush, then that's truth. But you got to check your heart if God's telling you things, um, and it's not God. It's just you wanting to hear that from God, or you're having a moment. And for me, that is something that I'm really cautious about. So if I'm going to say to my wife, I think God told me to take this job, um, I shouldn't say I think in front of it. I should know if God has spoken to me or not. God, nowhere in the Bible when he speaks to humans is there some question where after it's over they say, well, was that really God? When God actually speaks to humans, humans know it, and there's a truth to it. So don't swear by my name falsely, nor profane the name of your God. Don't use God's name when really what you're talking about is your own feelings, your own logic, and your own emotion. Be careful about that, right? Why? Because God's God, and he knows when you're using his name. We should be praying about everything and, of course, listening to God when we do that, but we should take great care before we say God told us things or God said this or spoke to us. Frankly, God's already spoke to us through the Word of God, right? So we see throughout the Bible that the Bible is God's telling us what to do. Leviticus is telling us how to live. And, it, and if we believe God inspired Moses, then we have God's Word right here so we could just as easily say, or point people to the word of God when we're trying to say what God said. So instead of some mystical thing that happened just between you and God, we can say, look, right here in, in Leviticus 
uh, 19.12, it says, don't swear by God's name falsely. And that's God's voice speaking through the word of God. So I feel confident when I have brothers and sisters in the faith that when they're trying to tell me what God's saying, they just point me to the word of God because God's already said it. And we can kind of lean on that. I like that I am the Lord is at the end of this one. And in, in one way to read verse 12 is to also read like, don't use my name for yourself because I'm God and, and, and implicitly God will speak for himself. He doesn't need you to speak for him. Uh, he can do that all by himself. So point people to the word of God. We should be admonishing people and exhorting people, but we can do that boldly as believers knowing what God said in the word. And we can point people back to the word. Verse 13, you shall not cheat your neighbor or rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. So we see in these rules that God has, we kind of see the nature of God and we see God's personality coming through because if these are things God wants of his people because he's the Lord, then when we act this way, we're also reflecting and mirroring how God acts to other people too. And God wants us to act with fairness, to treat our neighbors well. We don't use other people's weaknesses to rob them or cheat them, right? And we don't, we don't use our superiority in those rules either. So the wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night till morning. Oftentimes, part of the wages of what we'd offer people, they gave people at night so they could go buy a meal. So in the ancient w world, if I worked for you as a, as a farm owner, you'd pay me after the workday was done, and then I could use that money to go buy a meal and, and buy a place to sleep for the night. So people that hold that money back were people that were really making it so the weak had to suffer so they could hold on to money a little longer. Don't do that. Don't cheat your neighbor. Don't rob them. Don't hold their wages. Have some compassion for those that work and have some compassion and fairness for those that work for you. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Now, <laughs> This, in, in 13, you get a glimpse of the heart of God. In 14, you get a glimpse of how nasty the Israelites had to have been. Why would you need to write this if they weren't doing it? So cursing the deaf is just kind of cruel because they can't hear your curses, but everybody else in the room can hear what you're saying to them. It's just like middle school bullying. It's just cruel. And putting a stumbling block in front of blind people, that's mean. So when you see things like this, you think, what kind of people were the Israelites? Like, how bad were they if this is one of the things that has to be in this? And I'm really glad I live in an era of history where this would largely be rejected by a... If you did this to a blind person, most people would think you're a horrible, mean person. And you don't laugh at people and do that. But I, I remember back in elementary school, middle school, there were kids that just took joy in other people's suffering. And here we see... Not only the nastiness of Israel, but a little bit where God doesn't think that's cool at all. Don't do that. In fact, in doing that, the contrast is you should fear God. Because if you're going to be mean to the handicapped, the weak, the disabled, if you're going to be cruel to those people, God loves those people. And you should be fearful of what God's going to do to you if you get your kicks out of ripping on or picking on somebody who's weaker than you. I am the Lord, he says. That's not just me hearing a secret message. He wrote it right here in the book. I'm the Lord. He'll take care of that justice. So treat people with kindness. Treat
treat those that are weaker than you with dignity. Those that work for you, pay them immediately. Take care of the people around you. And God's coaching the people of Israel to be a different kind of people, right? Avoid the nastiness and take baths and all that stuff in previous chapters. But here we just see this glimpse of, and be nice. Be kind people. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Justice for all, right? Everybody gets justice. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Being just overrules the status. And in humanity, we go the other direction by nature. If somebody's rich, powerful, and wealthy, well, they should be able to fly their way through the legal system, right? And we see in the world that those that have resources can buy their way into getting special treatment. The further a country gets away from God, the more injustice you'll start to see in their legal system. We, implicitly in verse 15, there is judgment that has to happen in a society, and God sees that. He doesn't say don't judge at all, but in a civic society, he says don't be unjust in your judgments. You have to make decisions as a society, but it's limited by a written law, the law that God's going to write, or the legal code of other countries. It's not the whim of the judge or the whim of the king as to how you're going to treat people, right? So in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. The thing that should determine if someone is guilty or innocent is this law of righteousness that God's writing. He's giving us the rules. Did they do something wrong or didn't they? So it's not about opinion. It's not about groupthink. It's not about whether or not people like the person or not. It's about if they acted with righteousness or if they didn't and if it can be proven. In righteousness, you shall judge. God turns then to individuals, and he does this, I think, um, for a reason, because at a civic level, as a country, there's judgments that have to happen. But we see in both the Old and New Testament that we're not supposed to individually be acting out justice, right? Vigilantes aren't cool because they're generally driven by emotion and personal vendetta. So we see that in Matthew 7, verse 1, it says, Judge not, lest you be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So even though society has to have justice and judges systems, use righteousness and use the law, but be very cautious when you judge, because when you judge people, that's how God's going to judge you. And that's a New Testament concept, and we see that back here too. And anyone that starts telling gossip or tales or judging people that aren't them, there's a, there's a conflict with God, and we see that in verse 16. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. Nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. God will do that judging. It's not an individual's job to do that, even though a society has to judge criminals at times. Tailbearers get a kick out of talking about other people. So we <laughs> there's this consistent idea, right? So instead of leading a quiet life, minding your own business, we see that a talebearer likes to hear stories about other people and then tell others about it. They tell, they, they tell those stories. So instead of talking, and I think this happens because they don't have a personal walk with God. There's really nothing in their life that's that exciting to talk about, so they don't have anything to say. So they get excited about other people's stories. And look at the, the industry of like entertainment magazines that take pop stars and tell every story you can about those people, and you get all excited about people you don't even know personally. 
So they construct these narratives. You can say, well, when you're saying good things about people, that's not so bad. But talebearers is a neutral term. It doesn't say that it's a good story or a bad story. If we tell stories about people that are negative, that's either slander or gossip, right? If we tell stories about people that are positive, that could be seen as idolizing or idol worship. So telling these stories about other people, this is an interesting thing that I think sometimes we don't see as part of the list of what God wants for us. Both of these things are tail-bearing. When we attack someone with stories, that's never justice. Because you're taking things that aren't that person's words and deeds, you're taking stories about them and using that to judge people. It's never justice. It's always personal and it's always hateful. And frankly, when people do that, they're setting themselves up as an enemy of God when they do that. And we should kind of almost feel sorry for them. So when you take your life and you put it up and take other people's lives and make them your stories, you're putting your life over their life. You're telling their stories for them. You're stealing their thunder is how we might say that. And you're judging their character because if you think you can talk about their life and tell their stories, then you're making a judgment that you're more important than they are. That It's your right to tell those things. I am the Lord is at the end of this. The Lord's going to be the judge and he'll take care of those things for us. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 says, the hope for us as believers is that we aspire to or desire to lead a quiet life, to mind our own business. And I just like that phrase. And to work with our own hands as we commanded you. So that's, in, we see it in the New Testament too, this idea of mind your own business and keep your own counsel. And don't worry about what other people are doing or not doing. And don't go running around telling other people about it. It's not your job. Verse 17 which follows from that thought, you shall not hate your brother, and listen, look at the phrase, in your heart. Again, it's not whether or not you murder people. It's whether or not you even hate them in your heart, or as Jesus says, it's, it's well, I'll get to the Jesus quote too, but it's this idea that you're even thinking badly about other people. And here in the Old Testament, this place that's highly legalistic, we see that the heart is the core issue. This is the chapter Jesus often quotes with the Pharisees or he's paraphrasing from this chapter, that there's something above the law. And notice that we see this chapter after we saw the atonement chapter. When you're atoned for and you're walking with God or trying to walk with God, something should be changing in your heart where you don't hate other people. And that's hard. it's easy to not hate people when they're nice. It's really hard to not hate people when they're jerks or when they're putting stumbling blocks in front of blind people, right? That's when the, the, everything in us wants to hate those people. These are mas nasty, mean people. It's easy for us for, to, to hate people we don't really know, like politicians that disagree with us. We hate those people. But God says, don't hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. So there's a balance to this. We'll get to that. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. And we know Jesus cited this. This was one of his favorite verses. And if this is one of Jesus' favorite verses, I, I want to stop on this one and really absorb this one a little bit. So God's law here is looking at the heart, not the actions, right? Internal obedience means that there's a change in us on how we react to other people. So, so the next time somebody cuts you off on the freeway or cuts in front of you in line at the store and grabs all the toilet paper, we have to change our reaction, not because we're humanly going to do that, but because God's done a work in us. Our heart has changed. 
No, you can't hit the people in the grocery line either. So there's a fine line here. Notice the balance in verse 17. There's two ways to err on this. One way to err is to hate people or not like people. The other way to err is to not rebuke them when it's necessary or needed. So there's a difference between rebuking or correcting someone or announcing what God says on that matter to not loving them. So I, re I, I can hate my neighbor or when my neighbor's doing something that's clearly against God's law, I can say, look, I don't want any part of that. It's wrong because God says this. And that's not necessarily us judging people. It's us reminding people of what God's law says. And that's different. I rebuke people I love. I ignore people I don't love, right? So to hate someone and, and interact with them is one thing. To not like them and just ignore them is still on that side of things. To rebuke them is to have a change of heart where I actually have a hope that they're going to fall in line with what God wants to do. So to rebuke someone is to correct them or to intervene on their behalf, and it's what loving people do in loving relationships. If my um, kids are doing something that drives me crazy, I can pull them aside and lovingly rebuke them. Please clean up after yourselves. Please don't leave the milk out on the counter. And that's a rebuke, but my hope is that they put the milk away and we live in peace and harmony from here on after, right? My hope is that they clean up my garage when they go in and move all my tools around, that they put them back where they found them. And if they can do these things, then we live in harmony with one another and I don't have to judge them. I just need to remind them it's not their garage, right? And I need to point them to the idea that God's in charge of these things and I'm in charge of these things and they should be acting a certain way in those spaces. So it's a loving parenting kind of thing. We can rebuke each other in friendships, right? So friends can tell friends not to drive drunk. Um, not as an act of judgment, but as an act of love. Don't do that. It's going to hurt you. Don't do that because God says not to do that, right? So we don't get to declare what's right and wrong and what's holy and what's not holy, but we can remind people that God has defined what sin is. And that's a rebuke, right? Forgiving people when they change is also an expectation, so if they've done us wrong, we're not supposed to hate them, but we can rebuke them and say, look, I think you did wrong here. I think the Bible says to do this, and you did this, and I think that's a problem. In the New Testament, it says we should go to people immediately with that. We don't go to sleep on our anger or frustration with people. We quickly go to them and say, hey, you crossed a line here. Most of the time when I've done that in my life, I find that those people had no intention of crossing a line. They didn't have malicious thoughts when they did that. They were usually just careless. And, and immediately they'll say, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't mean to get you upset or anything like that. And the air clears and everything's good and it's happy. But when people hold on to those things and they just hate people in their heart and they don't address them quickly, that turns into bitterness and anger and it divides people and it becomes a horrible thing. And vengeance gets mentioned here too. Verse 18 says, you shall not take vengeance. This is a clear command from God. Humans don't get to individually take vengeance. Societies have to declare what's right and what's wrong and do justice, but individuals don't get to run around doing vengeance. So Batman is inherently one of my favorite superheroes, but he's also inherently acting in a way that's ungodly, right? In, in doing individual vengeance. Not, and Batman's not real, just so I can let people know that. Romans 12, 19, Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
I am the Lord at the end of verse 18. I'll do vengeance. You don't get to do vengeance. So when you really want vengeance and you've really seen some injustice in the world and you know who's doing that injustice, like David, sometimes it's okay to pray things like, Lord, I'm not going to take personal vengeance on this, but I would love to see you do your job. And I'd love to see you defend your name because it's your word that you said that we should and shouldn't do these things. Here's a person who's clearly in defiance against you. I've rebuked them and it didn't work. Lord, I kind of want to see what's going to happen next. And those, I think, can be prayers where you help to work the hate out of your heart because if it's not your responsibility to hate them and you give that place to vengeance, you give it over to the Lord and you know the Lord will deal with them in his own time, you can let it go. And it becomes kind of a great place to be. You shall. This law is a positive command. So in the last chapter, we saw a lot of do not kinds of things. Here we're seeing kind of things where it says you shall do these things. So what's interesting here where it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, um, this is a confounding thing because if I have to love my neighbor, neighbor as myself, it would sure be nice if I could define the word neighbor. Because if neighbor meant these people, then I can still hate these people. And I can start to divide the world up into neighbors and not neighbors. And that's what came up in Luke 10 in the New Testament, is they were debating this law that we're reading about in Leviticus. So Jesus has these lawyers coming at him with legal questions. And lawyers in Jewish society were people that studied and read Leviticus and were trying to carry that out in the judicial system. And the lawyers were kind of coming at him and, and Jesus says in verse uh, Luke 10, verse 26, he says to him, well, what's written in the law? What's your reading of it? So he answered and said, this is Jesus answering. Um, so he answered and said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart. And so Jesus is leaning on this idea that what we love God with our heart, not with our compliance. So, um, and then he goes on and says, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18. And I love when I can find what Jesus is quoting and kind of track with him. And he said to him, and I'm still in Luke 10, you've answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he wanting to justify, he being the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor. So this is kind of cool because the lawyer knew the verse that Jesus was quoting well enough to off the top of his head, he knew that there was a legal problem at the end of the verse. Okay, well, who's my neighbor? So they're having this debate and, and Luke doesn't explain it to us at all. He's just assuming that we know Leviticus too, right? And who's my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, well, he tells a whole story because Jesus answers with stories. This is what Jesus does. Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan and there's these three people that come and the first two people just leave this guy beat up on the side of the road and the third person that shows up is a Samaritan who the Jewish people hated because they were like half Jewish people. They weren't all in Jewish people. They were people that were corrupted by the Babylonians and poured it in and kind of did some Jewish traditions and some Samaritan traditions and they were hated by the Jewish people and Jesus has this Samaritan show up and he takes care of the guy on the side of the road. You know the story. I'll skip forward then. And Jesus turns to these lawyers and he says, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, the lawyer says, well, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do the same thing. So instead of answering the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus just says, look, when you see somebody who needs things, just help them. This isn't hard. 
it's only hard if we get legalistic about Leviticus. If we start picking it apart and trying to find loopholes to these things, then it's difficult. But if we just read it at face value, don't take vengeance, don't bear grudges against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We can resist that in our heart, or we can just say, Lord, I just want to be like that. Help me to not hold grudges. Help me to not be angry at people, right? Help me to think the best of folks when they do things. And help me to not hold that bitterness in my heart because I don't want to be one of those people. Help me to see a need and meet it and not worry about who, what class of people that person was born into, but just treat them like my neighbor. Jesus' answer then is essentially, the whole planet is your neighbor. Anyone you see is your neighbor. So treat them as you would yourself. I just love this. So Jesus lists this verse as one of the two most important laws in the entire Old Testament. Could you sum up all of the laws? He says, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And everybody's your neighbor. We'll get back to this more in verse 32 if you glance ahead. So the Jews are going to find over the next couple thousand years, there's no way to do these verses. That as human beings, we hold grudges. That without the Holy Spirit, we are lost in these things, right? And we still find that, this injustice, this tail-bearing that we tell stories about people, hatred of people in our hearts, that we there's certain people we just don't like, right? That as humans, we just are like that. We're like that all the time. So the Jewish people try to find all these legalistic ways around it. The Pharisees are busy doing all of that. But at the end of the day, we're lost and we're, we're hopeless when it comes to this. The only hope we have for this change of heart is the Messiah, this coming Messiah and the Holy Spirit that he's going to bring into our lives that will do a work in us that's beautiful. We'll keep going. We see a few more laws here in, in this chapter uh, that's going to set the Jewish people apart from all the pagan nations around them, all the kind of the idol worshipers. So verse 19, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. These sound really culturally contextual to us. God looks at very specific things in our life, and you see this rule in verse 19, and you're like, what is he talking about? Part of this is it's going to help to know that most of the pagan religions at that time saw some sort of magical quality when you mixed seeds or when you mixed different fabric types. So this would have been part of Canaanite rituals, and we would have seen that all of these things that are listed, this kind of breeding practice and all these things, uh, were the hope to create new magical entities. So you look in Greek mythology, for instance, and you see a lot of half-human, half-animal creatures. There's a mixing in their narrative because they're hoping for some sort of magical beast to come out of it. So there was a lot of that, and God's just saying, he's making it very simple for the Jewish people. Just don't mix this stuff. Don't mix yourself in with these kinds of things. I think we would do well to do this principle too. These from our perspective, not mixing the seeds, unless you're doing a wildflower garden, uh, seems like an odd little request to make. So you can make fun of the Old Testament, or you can say, look, there's a principle here. When there's things that look like pagan rituals or practices or things that aren't of God, stay away from them and just make it simple for yourself. Don't have anything to do with stuff that's on the border of those practices. So it's a good principle. Just stay away from it. And that's what God's asking them to do. Just don't do this stuff. Verse 20, 
whoever lies carnally with a woman who, has, who is betrothed to a man as a concubine or a slave and who has not been redeemed nor given her freedom, for this there shall be scourging, but they shall not be put to death because she was not free. So this is our only use of scourging in the whole Bible, you know, this punishment after a judicial inquiry. So there should be an agreement by the community of what's going on. And there's a, a marriage kind of slave here. It's assumed that this guy would eventually marry this woman afterwards, but because he's having sex with her beforehand, he should be punished for that. Notice that there's no apparent punishment for the slave girl in this verse. Remember when the Jewish people came to Jesus and they found this woman that had had, had an adulterous relationship and they kind of wanted Ju Jesus to judge her and start throwing stones. And he, you know, it's interesting, he writes in the dirt. And there's all sorts of theories about what he writes in the dirt when that happens. I think he's, he started writing this verse, or this could have been one of the things that he started to write, which is that the punishment in that situation should kind of be for the guy. And where was the guy anyways in that situation? Because the girl, technically, according to this law, doesn't get punishment. There's other laws against adultery where both the guy and the girl get punished. But in this situation, the girl wasn't free. She had no choice in the matter. There's no punishment listed the scourging is for the guy and, and the guy's not to be killed because he needs to stay alive because now he gets he, he now has a new wife he's got to take care of right verse 21 and he shall bring his trespass offering to the lord the door of the tabernacle of meeting a ram as a trespass offering the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering before the lord for his sin which he has committed and the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven him how does this all fit together? God pays attention to details. All of these things that we're getting in this list are things that test the willingness that we have to just do what God tells us to do. Verse 23, when you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, and you shall not count their fruit as uncircumcised. Three years it shall be as uncircumcised to you, and it shall not be eaten. Why would you put a rule like this in here? So again, this is where Leviticus gets picked on. It has all these particular little rules. So when we plant an orchard, those first fruits that come in, like the Garden of Eden, we're just supposed to not touch the fruit on those trees for the first three years. Why do you do this? Because we want to be obedient to God and because God said so. There's no inherent sin in eating that apple or that orange other than that God said no. So God puts a rule in here that has no apparent moral uh intuitive moral framework to it but when god makes the law now there's a moral framework to it it becomes not okay because god said so also it's an i think a nice conversation starter because all your neighbors are going to come in that aren't jewish or and they're going to say how come you're not eating all of these awesome apples off your new apple trees and your answer gets to be because i love the lord and when we find things in our life that are great conversation starters like why don't you do this thing there's no moral code here and we say, because I'm trying to set that aside for my God, you stand out and you put Jesus out in front. It's a great way to do that. And I think that there's a lot of things in our life and our society that we can set to the side and tell people we're setting it to the side because God said so in our life. God has spoken in a way that we're going to just leave those things alone. Verse 24. Oh, that, no, I'll go back to 23. There's also a nice benefit. Horticulturists today know that if you leave that fruit the first few years, it actually helps the trees get established. 
because they can um, that fruit can then nourish the soil underneath the tree, and it's actually really good for the tree. But they don't. That's not the logic that's given in Leviticus. We're supposed to just do it because God said so. But there's also kind of a nice benefit to it. Verse 24. But in the fourth year, all of its fruit shall be holy. So suddenly we can eat the fruit in that year four, and a praise to the Lord. Praise God. We have a healthy orchard. And in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit, that it may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God. If you do what I say, I'm going to bless your orchard. And that's not prosperity gospel. It's just the Lord saying, look, if you do what I say, there's going to be an increase spiritually in your life and even on your apple trees. So do what, you, do what I'm saying to do. Just obey. And then there's a promise that comes with it. If you obey me, there, there's going to be a blessing that comes with it. I don't know mature believers that don't see that. And it's not always a financial blessing, but it is a blessing of growth and getting closer to God and feeling like you're abiding with Jesus. When you do what God says to do, there isn't a distance between you and God. There's an intimacy between you and God. But when you're holding on to some sin in your life, like stealing apples off your apple trees in the first three years, that becomes a distance point between you and God, and it separates you. So... There are a number of items here that will further further separate Israel. And if you look at Canaanite religious practices, we're going to see a contrast here of in the next few verses, God's going to separate Israel from these practices. Verse 26, don't eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. We've talked about those in past chapters. Uh, divination, I think it's interesting, has the same root word in the Hebrew as serpent. <laughs> so uh, the idea of you don't be practicing serpent witchcraft or soothsaying, which is to predict, predict the future. You shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. So in verse 27, we see the beginning of what will be a timeless fashion style for Orthodox Jews. Let those sideburns grow, baby, and you can have the curls and let those beards grow big and bushy. And that's something that God's going to ask of his Jewish people. These are the sorts of things where the shaving of the head and the disfiguring of the beard into weird shapes, that hyper-grooming was really pop. That's part of both Egyptian and Canaanite practices in their religions. Egyptian priests would shave their whole bodies like a swimming competitor. Um, but Canaanites would do these ornate decorations with their beards, like the dwarves in Lord of the Rings. Right? So that was just part of how they would decorate themselves. And God's basically saying within their culture, don't do the things that make you look like them. Right? So whatever fashion style we pick, we should say something with our fashion style and be intentional about it. It's not that it's morally wrong to shave your hair or I'd be in trouble. It's that in that culture, that practice made them look like Canaanite priests, and God didn't want them to do that. Now, as the culture shifts around us, the principle stays the same. I shouldn't be dressing in a way that when you look at me, you think I'm a Satanist, right? I shouldn't look like the people that we're supposed to be set apart from. One verse that makes uh, uh, this kind of thing uh, continue or, or obvious is the next one, verse 28. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead. Obviously a religious practice. Cutting is not new. It's not edgy, right? Tell all of our high schoolers that. It's not a cool thing to be doing that. It's old, it's very old, and it's not good. No tattoo or any marks should be on you. I am the Lord. So is it wrong or right to get a tattoo? It's clear you can use this verse, and it says no tattoo, any marks on you. Don't, nor tattoo any marks on you. It kind of rhymes. 
soul. It's poetry. It's clear that it's there. In context, we have a whole set of passages that say, don't be like the Canaanite priests. Given that we don't have a lot of Canaanite priests anymore, no one would necessarily see a tattoo as that you are a Satan worshiper or you are a divinator or a soothsayer. Um, so it depends on what your tattoo looks like. One way to look at it is the not mixing of the seeds. Why even get close to it? So it's one of those things where like if, if you're in question or you're, you're asking that question, then just why even mess with it? Stay away from it. On the other hand, if you are in a Christian rock band and you want to decorate yourself with tattoos, you're actually affiliating and associating yourself with that practice. Um, that might be something to think about or you have to kind of wrestle with these verses and, and say how you're going to deal with those. Maybe our whole discussion after the teaching tonight will be about tattoos. Who knows? But I hope there's more in this chapter that we can talk about. Um, for today, at least, we can translate a general principle here, which is to not look like people who aren't servants of God. Don't dress or look in a way that does that. I'll push it to conviction here a little bit. Here, this is a rebuke. When I wear clothing that has a logo on it, I'm announcing who I serve with my money. So if we're not supposed to be following empty idols and we're not supposed to be sacrificing uh, to other gods or giving things up, then it, this idea of not cutting or shaving our head could be easily translated into don't wear things that make you look like your allegiance is to empty or contrary to God sorts of activities. Why would we do that? So how, do, how does our clothing and our tattoos represent our beliefs who we stand for and who we serve. And continuing on in this line of thought, verse 29, don't prostitute your daughter <laughs> because uh, to cause her to be a harlot, lest the land fall into harlotry and the land become full of wickedness. Again, the Canaanites saw this as a holy practice in the same way that um, other traditions would say our firstborn sons are going to go off to be priests. We're just going to tithe our first child, right? So in Canaanite practice, to give your daughter to the temple as a temple prostitute was seen as a holy sacrifice to their gods, uh, Asheroth in particular. And uh, that wasn't good. And it created a whole country where people didn't would have sex outside of loving and lasting relationships. Not only that, it's mean to do that to your daughter. Don't do that. And I think that one is not culturally contextual. I think we can generally say as a principle for all of eternity, giving your daughter to prostitution is a bad thing. What kind of people were the Israelites where God had to tell them this? Um, so verse 30, we come back to this, and it's almost like we're coming back to the Ten Commandments. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. Again, reverence is about the heart, not just to respect the sanctuary, but to love it. I am the Lord. Don't do all this pagan stuff. Just keep my Sabbaths. And, and reverence my sanctuary, reverence the place that we have together, the peace that we have together. Love that more than you love the world. Give no regard to mediums, verse 31, and familiar spirits. Don't seek after them to be defiled by them. I'm the Lord your God. It's not cute to see a fortune teller. Um, it's not something we should spend time on. If you want to have your palms read, if you want tarot cards played for you, this stuff is making a huge revival in the United States of America. It's not a party trick to play with Ouija boards. Don't seek out spirits to talk to you. It's interesting to me how the Bible doesn't say that they aren't there. 
It just says, don't regard them, don't listen to them, which implies that the Bible admits that there's spiritual forces out there. But don't give regard to mediums. Mediums, by the way, if you want to get into the Hebrew, mediums were people that would contact the dead. They would do seances and then hear what the dead has to tell them. Familiars are people that contact spirits and demons or they say they're talking to angels or something like that. So mediums talk to dead people. Familiars talk to spirits. Don't do that. It's not just superstition and it's not cute. Um, they will defile you. <laughs> and they, again, the rationale, which we've seen a few times, I am the Lord your God. I'm your God. Don't go talking to dead people. Talk to me. Respect that sanctuary that we have. Now you get this an expansion on this whole idea of loving your neighbor in verse 32. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honored the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. It's a human tendency to forget old people to disregard old people. They're not as energetic as young people, um, so maybe we think they don't have as much to say, um, but they bring blessing to a culture. Old people bring tradition, and that tradition that they bring is good. Holy people can then honor and elevate the wise and the elderly in their society. We can give respect to old people, and that's a way that we set ourselves apart from the rest of the world. There's been a rise in America of taking old people and putting them away into nursing homes, into old folk communities. And the more we can visit people in those spaces, the more we can bless people in those spaces, the more we can counteract this idea that when people get old, we just abandon them, right? We don't take care of them. Um, there's a crown of glory that Christians, I think, and Jewish people can give to the elderly that respect that we honor people with. To honor the old is to honor God. And because it's what he tells us to do in verse 32. Verse 33, who else should we honor? Strangers. If a stranger dwells or abides with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. So we have some people that, are not, that weren't born here in the United States, and we shouldn't mistreat them. We should be kind. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one who is born among you. Should treat them like they're natives. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. <laughs> I'm the Lord your God. If I'm the Lord your God, then treat the stranger like they're part of your family. Okay? At some point, we're going to hit stuff that's hard. For me, this is a hard one. And I'll just confess to you, I love my family and my home. And you all know it. We welcome you into it. But to just have some stranger come into my house, all my security alarms start going off. Right? So should I just blindly and, and ignorantly let people into my home and whatnot? And it doesn't necessarily say that. It says to treat people as though they were born among you. So there may be, maybe it doesn't mean opening up your house to total strangers, which could be actually dangerous, but it should have something to do with how we treat people. And I think, well, that might mean I actually take time to help people and treat people. And I think this command combined with the other one is why Jesus went to telling the Samaritan story, right? Because he's fleshing that idea out for his, the people that were listening to him in that argument he was having with the lawyers. This is not, verse 33 and 34, this is not the accusation that the God of the Old Testament is harsh and mean. It is hard to see that accusation as true when you read this chapter and these verses in particular. This is a big, wide-open idea that we should be kind, that we should have mercy, 
that we should take people who aren't us and treat them like they are. And this too is a reflection of the same God. It's a reflection of Jesus. The kind God of the Old Testament has mercy on the stranger, mercy on the people that, 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 that are vulnerable. And there's an open door for the Jewish people to forget this over time. And this is part of why Jesus got into it with the Pharisees, is they started treating people or strangers or others horribly. And Jesus intervenes or comes into the world during a period of history where the Jewish people just forgot chapter 19. And they stopped doing these things. But that doesn't mean the Old Testament is harsh and mean and cruel. It means that we stopped reading the Old Testament. We stopped seeing the God that presented himself through these words. Then listen to 35. It just gets, there's a kindness to this. You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephath, and an honest hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't be greedy. Notice how we're coming back to these ideas, like God kind of put them all in order for us, and we keep coming back. What they would do, in, and I think they can still do it, is if I came to you with, say, 10 gold pieces, I would weigh those pieces to be so much weight per gold piece. So you would know how much gold I had, and then I would stamp them with that number, right? So if I cut the gold or change the gold, or even worse, I put the number on it, but it doesn't actually weigh that, I'm being dishonest with my weights. And depending on if I'm buying or selling, I might have a different set of coins that I put out to put on that scale. That was dishonest, and it, 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 it ran rampant through, throughout the ancient world. But with the Jewish people, they're going to be honest. And throughout history, this command for honest weights helps the Jewish people become a trade center uh, as they go through history because even foreigners know they're going to get a fair trade when they, when they deal with the Jewish people. So verse 15 is to have justice with humans. Here we see justice in finance and how we deal with people in our business dealings. Ephath and hens, of course, are measurement types that were unique to these people. Um, I think it's interesting because we've already talked about robbery, right? But this takes on a, a worse idea because we're robbing people, but we're pretending that we're doing a deal with them. So there's a, at least robbers are honest. They're stealing your stuff and there's no question about it. Here you're stealing my stuff and I don't even know it. You're being a hypocrite. So this is kind of worse than thievery is to be unjust with people in the measurements. Verse 37, therefore you shall observe all of my statutes and all of my judgments and perform them. I am the Lord your God. So I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to go to Matthew 5 here in a second and just kind of wrap this chapter up. The command comes back at the end in verse 37 that it's not just to obey them, observe all the statutes and judgments, but we're supposed to perform them. And the Bible consistently says that. It's not enough to read the Bible. We have to actually do what we read. The book of James kind of makes that point, right? We see it and we do it. We read it in God's word, then we do God's word. We keep seeing this idea through the Bible because it's about the heart, which is what this chapter is hit on. It's not enough to just comply with what God's statutes and judgments are. We actually have to act on them and do what they say. And we do that, and I think it's interesting, the rationale kept up through this chapter again and again and again. In fact, 15 times it says, I am the Lord your God. The reason we obey, the reason we shift our heart is because we serve a holy God who gives us the heart to do these things. So if on any of these points, 
you kind of push back or you resist and say, dang it, I'm going to get angry at people if they steal my toilet paper or anything like that, we can pray to God and say, Lord, change my heart. Just make me a different person, right? If we have even temptations to like, I mean, it's tax season, right? And I think it was funny because Grant was doing his taxes the other day and he talked about just not including one of the workplaces he worked for because it wasn't a large amount and whatnot. And at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well then you're cheating the government of what you say you're supposed to be giving them. So though there's a temptation and you can get away with cheating or cutting corners on your taxes, you should leave those corners for the government, just like you leave your field for the poor. What difference does it make? It's just money. So you just pay the taxes, but that's a heart issue because everything in me wants doesn't think the government should take my money. Um, my uncle used to always say, if you pay a lot of taxes, it's me it means you made a lot of money that year. Um, give the government what the government deserves and don't cut corners. Have a heart that just does what you're supposed to do. You shall observe my statutes and all my judgments and perform them. I'm the Lord. If I'm going to be your God, then do what I'm asking you to do. This is not different from the New Testament. All these laws and statutes aren't different. I want to go right to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Verse 17 is where I'll start. Jesus demands that his followers do righteousness. Listen to this. Don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. This is the guy making a new covenant that's going to make it so we don't have to do all the sacrifices and rituals, but he's fulfilling them. He's finishing them. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until it's all fulfilled. So when we see things like this is a statute for all generations, means that's going to be there for good. And Jesus backs that up. Verse 19, Matthew 5, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, like mixing wool and linen, right, and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's interesting. It means we could break a commandment and God can still forgive us and we can still get into heaven even though we're sinners. Yeah, Jesus was okay with that. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you. I kind of want to do what God says to do because I like the idea that God would respect that and he would honor people that do what he says to do. For I say to you, this is Jesus, not me, for, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, these people running around being legalists, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, which is like idiot, you should be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. It's interesting. The perceived infraction gets less and less as he gives his list, and the judgment that he proclaims gets greater and greater. If our heart is such that we think less of other people to where we think you are a foolish person, we're in danger of hellfire. The least of these commandments, it's about the heart. It's not about the rule. Therefore, this is Jesus again, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, you start coming to church and you remember your brother has something against you, you're holding grudges, you're tailbearing, you're, you're gossiping, leave your gift at the altar and go your way. Leave church, get out. 
Go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If you've wronged somebody, fix it. It's about the heart. It's about how you live so that you live in a way that's true and has integrity versus the hypocrisy of hating people and calling yourself a Christian. Don't do it. You bring the name of God down because if you love people and God's your Lord, people see that. They see a person who loves. But if you're doing one thing and you're picking and choosing which of God's laws you want to follow, you're diminishing the God that you're claiming to follow. You're a hypocrite. I'm rebuking you. I'm not judging you. If anything, Jesus is more demanding than what we just read in Leviticus. What I just read you from Jesus' own mouth in the New Testament is much harsher, harsher than what it says in Leviticus. Because in Leviticus, I could just go give a trespass offering or a sin offering and I'm taken care of. Or I can have atonement and be covered by the sacrificial system and I'm all good, right? But here Jesus is saying it's, it's more than that. There's a heart. I can't just be like a Pharisee, which follows all the Levitical law. I have to be greater than that, or I'm in danger of not going to heaven. I want to go to heaven, but I don't know how to do it. My heart isn't there. So there's two things that get balanced with Leviticus, and Jesus talks about this too. There's both righteousness, living right, and there's love. And if we don't do both, we're in danger of not going to heaven, right? And I think both righteousness and love are things that we have to have help from God and the Holy Spirit in order to really cultivate those in our life. Righteousness and love. It's a heart issue. It's more than obedience. We used to say this to the kids all the time. We'd, you know, there were chores that they had to do. And then we'd, then we'd say, like, can you help me with this? And they'd go, oh, I don't want to. And we'd say, don't worry about it. If you can't help with a good heart, we don't want you to help. Because if you're going to do anything, do it because you're, you're, you're happy to do it and because the Lord's given that to you. That's godliness. So righteousness without a good heart is what I would call religion. And righteousness without love or without a, without a heart of love is a hateful, nasty, pharisaical thing. It's to have power and authority over others with no life and no heart. And the flip is bad too. To have a heart without righteousness is to be a watered-down human version of wishy-washiness, right? So you love everybody with no conditions and no lines and no boundaries. And that's to be walked over or to just have no standing at all. And it's, it's compromised. It's to have life and love with no power in your life, no authority. So righteousness and love together is the individual pursuit of God. And again, I promised you at the beginning of, of Leviticus, there isn't a lot of storyline here, but you start to see the heart of God. God wants you to have both righteousness in your life, boundaries, rules, and he wants you to have love in your life. You do those rules because you love God, not because you have to. Nobody gets to do this for us. There's no, at some point, there's no parent in our life that can do righteousness and love for us. We have to do it on our own. It's the danger of being a Christian parent is that your kids kind of live off of your holiness and they never develop their own pursuit of holiness. And that's what we pray for our kids. What's what we pray for everybody we know is that the development of both love and righteousness will go side by side to make people a holy people. Not to judge others, not to be vindictive, but to judge ourselves and to demand better of ourselves and turn to the Lord in prayer saying, Lord, make me better because I can't do it on my own. I hate those people that take the toilet paper. No one does it for you. So 
We pay attention to being clean. We've seen a lot of that in Leviticus. This is clean. This is unclean. We tune into all those things. But if the heart isn't behind it, if we're not doing it because we love the Lord, we might as well leave the tabernacle and, and get out. So you're either all in or you're all out. There's right and there's wrong and you live it out. And people make this really complex because we resist it. But it's not complex at all. God makes it extremely simple. This is clean. This is unclean. This is righteous. This is not. And then he asks us to do it. And the reason he gives 15 times is, I am the Lord. Either I'm your God and you're following me or I'm not your God and don't pretend like you're following me. And it's a tough message to hear. So may we be blessed in hearing it. May we be convicted and rebuked by the word of God, but not hateful or resistant toward the word of God. May we have soft hearts towards it so that we can love others as we love ourselves. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your word, and which can be hard to hear. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that there are some things that you ask us to do that are easy, and there, th- there are some things that are hard. And Lord, when it comes to changing our heart and just doing things because we love you, that is harder than doing things because it's the rule. And Lord, I ask you to make me joyfully accept your rules and your righteousness and your boundaries, your definitions. Uh, they are hard to accept, and we live in a culture, Lord, that pushes on almost all of them. And Lord, I just ask you that I do that, but help me, Lord, not to judge other people that don't. That's not my job. You are the Lord, and you'll judge those people on your own. Help me to love those people as I love myself because I, too, am lost in my own humanity. And Lord, I am in every way, shape, or form, I, I struggle with a heart of obedience and compliance because I have a will where I want to do it my own way all the time. Change my heart. Make me different. Lord, I pray for everyone that's praying with me right now. May you bless them. May you abundantly fill their life with your presence and your spirit. And on every single point that they're wrestling, Lord, can you just change their heart and do it over time painlessly and and and, and majestically, Lord. May your manifold wisdom be played out in their life and fleshed out in their hearts. May we never be like the Pharisees where we judge and we run around like legalists, Lord. May we always be people who love in equal balance to reminding people what God's law is because you love and created everyone on this planet and you have made them, Lord, and given them a purpose and a plan in your kingdom. And Lord, help us to be people that are just magnetic with love that we care for people and we love the people. But Lord, we know the boundary where we're not wishy-washy either. We have standards that we hold ourselves to and we do it joyfully. And we do it because we want you to be our God, that that's our reason too. It's not an argument. It's not a rationale. It's a service to a living God. Lord, help us to abide and dwell with you and to just have peace with you and help us to spend that time with you. Lord, I pray for us because we can't hang out in the same room. So Lord, may you just fill our heart with... uh, uh, and meet that need of companionship. And may, in the, as we're further away from other people, help us to draw closer to you and, and take this time as a Sabbath in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Two announcements as we wrap up. One, this Thursday night at six o'clock, there's an invitation in the group me, and it's on the website too. Uh, Trevor Rubenstein, my Jewish uh, friend, my Messianic Jewish friend, is gonna run a Passover dinner. And he's doing it in Zoom, and anybody who wants can use the password and jump in. So if you've never seen a Jewish Passover dinner and seen how it kind of mirrors or speaks of the Messiah, it is so amazing. So I just want to invite you on Thursday night, 6 o'clock, join us, and you'll get to meet one of my good friends, Trevor. 
and uh, I think you'll be just, he's amazing. And, and the way he communicates and teaches, he's just one of the best teachers I've ever seen. So you'll enjoy it and, and it'll be a good time. And if you've got Thursday night free, do it. And then the second thing is we're not quite done. We're going to leave the stream and uh, Christina uh, Dunn got us the link in our group me to jump into Zoom. That link is also on the website. So if you're not part of the group me, you can just go to allingospel.com and you can jump into the discussion where we'll probably end up talking about tattoos. That's my guess. Um, but there were some other topics that people might want to wrestle with too. And we can do that. All right. See you there. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.